Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Weeb Crew Podcast. I'm your host as always, Mumi, and joined with me today is Sciotic. Yo. You know, Sai, we, we always have very special guests on the show, but we have a particularly special guest today. We have the godfather of anime subs himself, William Chow. How's it going, William? I'm doing very well, very well. We've kind of wanted you on the podcast for a while. It, is, <laughs> like, it has been something we've talked about off and on for, yeah, since since starting it even, I think. Yeah, probably at least since we kind of started talking about like who we wanted to have on and just like general topics we kind of want to touch on. Like you were one of the ones that came up first. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be really cool one day to have William Chow on? Well, I'm glad to be here. Never thought we'd get this far. <laughs> we're enthusiastic about it, but for anybody that might be listening who might not kind of be familiar with you, if you want to give us a little bit of like a brief introduction, give everybody kind of on a starting point. Sure. Basically, I started in anime quite a long time ago, back in the late 1980s. And um, one of the things I've noticed was is that, uh, you know, at that time, there was no anime dubs or subtitles, right? So very, basically everything that we got for Japanese animation was straight in Japanese. And um, we had figured that this is you know, very difficult to make other people uh, interested in the hobby. So um, uh, you know, I basically got together and pioneered what modern people know as fan subbing and basically started fan subbing a lot of animes and that stuff to VHS tape. Um, we started a company called uh, Arctic Animation and we basically fan subbed over about a thousand episodes of uh, TV episodes, uh, OEVAs, uh, movies, and that stuff. Started with things like you know, Orange Road, Maze Nakaku, Pat Labor. Then we've gotten to a lot of the Magical Girls shows, uh, Sailor Moon, Miracle Girls, Himichan's Ribbon, Red Riding of Cha-Cha. And then we started getting into a lot of the Gundams, uh, Wing, G Gundam, a Double Zeta Gundam. Basically did a lot of th- different things. And I'd uh, also opened up a Japanese animation store uh, back in the, the 1990s. That basically helped people get interested in and get at Japanese merchandise. And we you know, sat around playing Japanese video games all day. So yeah, so uh, you know, basically the legwork for a lot of the uh, anime that uh, that we got in the in the later years. That's what's given you kind of the moniker of like the grandfather of anime in America or fan subs. Is you know you're very integral, kind of introducing it to a lot of people. Um, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time on a lot of the stuff you've made videos on because you've got such like an extensive kind of library, and it is very easy to kind of parse through with your the kind of catalog that you've made. And we kind of really want to encourage people to go there. But, like, speaking of your videos, like, what is your kind of creative process there? Like, do you prioritize any kind of, like, particular subjects as, like, being kind of more important to kind of touch on first? Or is it just kind of like a whim kind of thing where it's like, oh, you know, I kind of feel like talking about my anime store today, or I want to talk about this element of fan subbing this week. What is kind of your creative process there? Well, let's see. It all started when I, I, I did a, a, a collab um, with and showed up on the uh, Happy Console Gamers YouTube channel. And he mostly talks about video games and that kind of stuff. But but Johnny was initially a uh, a, a customer that came into my store, and he just got you know again like most people, just uh, absolutely fascinated with the anime, and was just uh, was overwhelmed with the the amount of anime and games and music and that kind of stuff that was with there. And then um, so once I finished going on his show, I decided I get, uh, I'm gonna you know do a channel where I was going to talk about you know the history and the, all the things that 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 happened in the early years of, of anime, right? And I kind of laid it out you know like a book, like I, like I wanted like you know I need to talk about you know cosplay, I need to talk about conventions, I need to talk about um, you know merchandise, I need to talk about the videos and the, the process and, and all this kind of stuff. So. I kind of have it sort of laid out in terms of topics I should be talking about and, and areas that I should cover. 
And then after that, I would uh, talk about things that I would have reference material for. So, for example, if I going through uh, you know fan mail and that kind of stuff, I come across something that triggers a story, then maybe I should make an episode in regard to that. My recent one, I was going through some uh, old uh, VHS video cassettes, and you know I found a video cassette of a fan sub collab that we did. So I thought, okay, well maybe I'll make a spend an episode to talk about this you know other fan sub group and uh, how we collab together to make some episodes together. So that's, you know, I don't really have a, you know, a structured plan per se, but it's just, you know, as the topics become available. Yeah, I think we kind of got a little bit of insight to that. And then kind of that same, do you generally watch a lot of YouTube or are there any like other anime YouTubers you kind of watch or do you take any kind of inspiration from any other YouTubers or do you just... Usually what I'll do is when I'm uh, doing uh, an episode or something, you know, I needed to, let's say, maybe get a picture or something. Maybe I, I couldn't quite remember the artist's name, how to spell it or something, so I'll have to type it in and then, uh, you know, get some information. And then all of a sudden, a video or a suggestion would usually show up, right? And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll click on that because the title seems interesting. I'll, I'll see what this person is talking about. And then usually what will end up happening is that we'll watch the video and then I'll, I'll see the person doing different points and hitting certain check marks. And then I notice that, okay, well, there's some gaps that maybe we should be fleshed out a little bit more and maybe that little spot of information isn't there. So maybe I should elaborate more or uh, maybe add some more information there. And uh, that's sort of how I kind of came across some of those. And, and I do have a list of not just YouTube videos, but I also have people's essays and people's blogs and that kind of stuff they've, that they've done. Oh, okay. Which is, you know, like, like written works and that kind of stuff about, you know, what the legality of fan subs and that kind of stuff and whatnot. Um, you know, I've got those also set aside and saved for, you know, times where I'll do an episode about that. Do you have any kind of like ones that you kind of keep up with on like a regular basis or is it all just kind of just whenever you kind of come across it? I mean, I do have a couple that are hit subscribed because then they'll, they'll, they'll come up with, the, you know, new suggestions whenever they post new videos and that kind of stuff. And I'll look at them and going, OK, that's, uh, you know, that's an interesting topic. I've never thought about that. I know that there are a couple that I subscribe to, which are <laughs> what I refer to as list episodes. You know, probably the easiest episodes to make, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of remember from listening to, like, for example, like the Ben Maller show. He always would call it low, low-lying fruit um, in terms of episodes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't require too much thought to build those type of episodes. Yeah, yeah. I think now they would just call it, like, the Watch Mojo videos. The Watch Mojo, yeah, CBR. But no, on the same, the token, you know, that sort of gave me the inspiration of eventually, you know, building my sort of uh, top videos of the, you know, the decade kind of thing where I, you know, where I'll actually go through and literally tier list all the episodes that are in, in the thing so it'll be like a really de facto standard one where i can you know, actually go through all the titles and not just uh, you know surreptitiously you know pick like you know the, <laughs> some random 10 that i actually like you know yeah so you do you consume like a lot of like fan sub kind of content like i guess you were saying you read like a lot of like the blogs about like fan subs like is the content you're watching kind of in regards or like reference to fan subbing or yeah i mean not necessarily just just, just fan subs but i mean just you know the state of the uh, the you know the, the anime as it is you know, like you know, like you know the the culture mm. cuz that's sure. another big thing that that really interested me in what people are doing and that kind of stuff you know cuz i you know I, I still like to be you know to go to smaller conventions and that kind of stuff so you know i, you know, I like to be sort of you know into seeing what the uh, you know what anime fans are doing per se as well so you know, and it helps me reflect on what we used to, basically. Yeah, yeah. Since you touched on it there, speaking of, like, conventions, like, I know you've had, like, some videos where you're kind of a little bit more critical of anime conventions because you kind of mentioned that they focus kind of more on, like, the artist alley and kind of just more unofficial merchandise. You know, since you kind of attended, because I actually haven't been to a convention here probably in 
gosh, a decade now. Yeah, I, I think I go to conventions more regularly than yeah. <laughs> they don't really have anything I'm really interested in. Like I, I get really into like the production side. So I get that too a lot when it comes to like panels. Yeah, like I'd I'd want to go and like meet like a director, uh, even like a, a writer or you know some kind of like actual staff members. But a lot of the like, conventions down here, like they're kind of more focused on like dub actors and stuff like that. Which yeah, yeah. Uh, William, do you think that like conventions really kind of have like a place, like their own kind of niche now? as opposed to what they had before, where it's just kind of more focused on, like, I guess it's more now, it's just more, like, fan stuff, like, more of, like, the community, as opposed to anything really having to do with, like, the industry, for the most part. Do you, I mean, do you think that's kind of how they've kind of adapted and how they kind of are surviving now? I don't know if the word adapting is, it's quite the word, right? <laughs> I think that the, 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 um, it all comes, comes down to funding, really, right? Mm. In back of the day, you know, um, Everyone wanted to promote their like the, the companies want to you know promote their anime and, and you know and uh, you know get you interested in their product right so they are always uh, you know constantly focusing on trying to basically promote the new animes right so you'd get Viz uh, Viz Video or uh, you know Genom or Bandai coming out and trying to promote the new Gundam or you know trying to show uh, you know show you and get you some you know some swag on Inuyasha or something right and then yeah you you would be able to get maybe the manga artist or some famous uh, singers or that kind of stuff that do like an opening or a theme song or something, but that costs you know money. And now, you know, especially after the anime crash, the, a lot of the things that uh, people can get, uh, you know, representatives and that kind of stuff uh, are really, really expensive now. And uh, you know, a lot of the conventions, unless you're like Anime Expo or something, you really can't afford to bring in uh, a big key name. So the only people that you can bring in are you know basically you know English dub actors and. Maybe the odd translator here and there, or, or even just like comedy groups and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so, yeah. So I think what has shifted is instead of a lot of the focus being on anime as a commercial product, it's focused on a lot of fandom-related things. Things that instead of promoting the anime per se, promotes the person. Okay, you know, a lot of cosplayers, a lot of people who are doing things like uh, you know. They do everything from like Photoshop editing and they, you know, different artwork and that kind of stuff. You know, again, a lot of focus on the artist alley, right? Because these are the people that are really easy and economical for a convention to bring in and to do a convention. And then, of course, now we're talking about, um, you know, when, once you get these people into the convention, you have to have some content. Well, if you can't get, you know, um, you know, manga artists and that kind of stuff, or you know, uh, and whatnot in, then who do you get in? Well, you get in whoever submits fan submissions right? so they get people uh like comedy groups uh you know basically people who perform kind of anime music in in english i guess you could, or whatever or cover songs and you get these uh you know maid groups and maybe make them like a maid cafe or something and a lot of uh, self-promotional type of things using anime as the as, as the back base right and so i think a lot of the modern conventions have kind of lost you know that we're here for the anime, and we're not here for you, type of thing. But you know that's what now what the anime is more about. It's more about self promotion. Come to my website. Come to my Instagram. You know my OnlyFans. My you know yeah. <laughs> my you know Twitch. Whatever. Right. Yeah. I know, like Anime North in Toronto, which happened a few weeks ago. A lot of like the big people they were promoting going there were like these like large like uh, anime YouTubers and VTubers and stuff. So it's interesting how they've sort of how those sorts of content creators have become sort of reasons you go to a convention in and of themselves. Yeah, the Western anime convention they've kind of almost become more about 
people in the West who like anime as opposed to the people in anime or like the anime themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't been to like, you know, a ton of conventions, but I've been to a I've been to like, you know, a few conventions and I think the only creator I've really seen appear at these conventions is Nabe Shin, uh, Shinichi Watanabe, who is a pretty entertaining guy to go see, but he's also not like the biggest name uh in the world either. Sure. It, I just feel like it's kind of a shame cuz I mean, my first convention was back in like 2002. Okay. And I remember back then, like, it was very much, like, anime-focused. Like, you know, you'd go to the dealer room, and, you know, back then, like, and William probably knows a little bit about, like, that was the only place that you would kind of just be enveloped in anime stuff. Yeah. I remember you wouldn't really know about, like, you had the internet, but, you know, your average kind of person who watched anime or consumed anime at the time, even back then, they might not have had internet at home, at least in, like, the U.S. I'm not sure how it was up in Canada. But I know, you know, I was pretty limited on, like, what I had access to on the internet. So I was just consuming stuff from, like, Shonen Jump that just kind of started publishing uh, in the U.S. that year. I think this is 2003. It's, you know, what was on TV. And so that was, like, going to a convention was, like, your first time where you kind of were able to see, like, all this anime stuff. Because it was just, like, maybe a book here and there in, like, your store or something. Yeah. But this was, like, you actually had all the merch in the dealer's room. And you got to see, like new stuff that you've never even like heard of there was almost like a utility to it yeah yeah whereas like i'm a, probably a bit more online than like your average person my age but you know when i go to an anime convention it's kind of a struggle to find things off the beaten path for me in terms of just like wow i didn't i never knew this existed yeah i mean to your reference like i mean i went to basic anime conventions before even you know windows 95 came out right yeah and even right. anime expo uh well, well the, like the beginning of anime expo began in 94 right so even before you know our windows environment that we use even existed so yeah you know here we are you know anime fans which you know have you know pretty much in the dark right you know no internet no nothing right and then you learn about this thing called you know an anime convention sakura con and that kind of stuff and all these other kind of you know local anime conventions especially all up uh, down uh, washington and then and uh in california here you would make up you know plan literally throughout the year to go to these big conventions because that's the only place that you would get your hands on all the anime, not just you know, the manga. They'd actually have video rooms where you can actually go in there and you sit down and you can watch anime. And you know, if you've never seen like a particular video and want to see what, what everyone's talking about or want to see something you've never heard of before, you can actually physically sit down there and actually watch it. And again, this is you know, you know the time, probably all the way up you know, until 2004 or something like that, um, I mean, I guess I'm partially spoiled because I, you know, I've, I've gone to things like you know, San Diego Comic Con, probably one of the, you know the largest type of convention setups that they, there is, and um, yeah, that's what it was. It's basically every dealer, every company knew that they had to have you know be there, and at this time, I think the conventions were I think really more like a trade show, mm. so like uh, like E3 for example or something like that, right? Yeah, like like what E3 used yeah, to be. You'd yeah, you'd go there. You want to get some merchandise or some, you know, some posters or st- cards or stickers or, you know, uh, pins or something like that. Uh, and then, you know, so every company is there. They know that all these people are going to come for anime and that kind of stuff. So you better have your flyers ready. You better have all your people, your staff, you know, are, are going to be there to, you know, to promote your products, uh, you know, to show people that, hey, this year we're coming up with all this kind of stuff, you know. Invite a Japanese guest or whatever, and have them sit at your table or whatever. You know, all that's what these companies did, right? And so that's what a lot of people would go to these conventions for. And um, after the you know the anime crash, you know, obviously you know money got really really tight, and you know a lot of the big anime companies that we had at, at that time, you know, 
are no longer around or a total different entity than they were before. Um, and uh, so now that content has been replaced by basically fan content, and uh, you know, and that's one of the major changes I, I, I see in in um, in conventions. And so now when I go to a convention, I'm finding it very, very difficult to actually find Japanese merchandise, right, uh, and, and whatnot. Because I mean, it's, it's not like I don't want to support the fans and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, it's important to get authentic merchandise because obviously, you, uh, a, I want to support the, you know a manga artist who has actually done something that I really particularly like. And uh, and, the, and the second thing is that you know it, you know if I'm able to actually meet or uh, you know come up and, and uh, find the, this person, uh, you know I want to basically have something that you know that, that shows that I you know <laughs> particularly like uh, you know the artist for enjoyed or whatever and have uh, available for uh, you know autographs or just you know, the discussion and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing that you actually supported their cause as opposed to just picking some random dojin someone made off the street and be like, hey. Yeah, can, sign you, this yeah, for can me. you sign this doujinshi you did not make? I feel like part of that might be, you know, because that utility of, like, conventions is kind of gone. Obviously, by the time I started going to conventions, the utility of, like, having to share the anime, that wasn't necessarily... Like, you could buy some anime, like, imported, or, like, some imported video games, stuff like that, but it wasn't... Like, that was the only way you could get anime. Like, by that time, we started getting anime on VHS, like Dragon Ball, and, you know, stuff like My Neighbor Totoro, and, like, Little Nemo, and stuff like that come on VHS. So that wasn't the only way to get it at that point, like, in the early 2000s. But that was still kind of the only way for you to kind of see merchandise. And I think a lot of that, like, the expansion of, like, the dealer... and the Sorry, the Artist Alley, and, like, the shrinking of, like, the dealer rooms, I almost feel like that might be as like a direct result of just technology kind of getting to the point where it's not that expensive to buy directly from Japan the official merchandise anymore. No, if anything, it's cheaper. Yeah, because I remember like importing Naruto stuff back in like 2003 or four, just like little gachapon figures or something like that was really expensive. And then you go to like a convention and it was marked down a little bit because like obviously they could get kind of more stuff in bulk and bring it over that way. So there was like that utility there, but now it's, it's almost like there's like a premium market up at a convention where you're getting like a prize figure that they have in the little claw machines and they're selling it for a premium yeah when you could buy it off of a japanese website that's directly kind of going back into the industry for not even a fourth of the price so i wonder like how much of that is just a direct result of just the growth of the world and like the you know things becoming more interconnected and easier and, and easier to access things overseas yeah yeah globalization has definitely you know you know done a lot to that because i mean back in the day uh, everything was all based off of, you know, basically uh, regionally, you know, whenever they release products in Japan, whether it be CDs or Laserdiscs or, you know, heck, even video games, right? They only ever expected that product to ever be sold in Japan. Yeah. That's, for example, why the, the, the region coded PlayStation games for Japan only, right? Sure. Yeah. Because uh, they figured, oh, yeah, no one else in the world would ever want to play this game, right? So they'll only make it for the, you know, that particular country. And then just shortly after the PlayStation 2 sort of thing kind of happened, uh, you know, that's when everyone sort of realized that, no, this stuff can travel all over the world. You know, anime you know, can go everywhere and it is liked by everyone. You know, people would love to play all these Japanese games and all that kind of stuff outside of Japan, right? And so for a while, you know, that was the place to get Japanese goods is, is at a convention because, you know, not everyone sort of knew, especially when they're not connected to the internet, because again, from about 95 to about 2000, right, everyone really didn't all have an internet, right? And, uh, you know, especially around Windows 95 to about Windows 98, everyone was still getting internet through dial-up using AOL disks and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
So <laughs> we're not talking about reliable internet here, right? So at that time, you know, conventions still had their heyday of being the source for getting, you know, anime goods and that kind of stuff, right? But slowly, as you, you know, as, as time gone on, right, and, um, you know, the process of globalization and people kind of jumping more onto the internet and, you know, getting things online and whatnot, it slowly became easier and cheaper to get things straight from Japan from, you know, a lot of independent sellers and that kind of stuff, uh, whether it be like Yahoo Auctions or, uh, you know, or Mandrake or, or um, you know, Book Off or something like that. There were different uh, places that, 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 that sort of came and rised out, uh, out of that. And, and, and not, no, no, they're making all the money. And of course, now, uh, you know, uh, people in, in conventions, when they go to sell things, you know, again, it's a lot harder because, you know, in order to buy a, you know, a, a table at a convention, you know, you, you know, it's like, you know, $800, $1,000 for a table, right? So sure. you know, they got to make their money back somewhere in there. So it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a, it's a hard markup, that's for sure. Say, it's like, it's not even a, you know, even at this point, you know, anime is becoming so popular, especially in the U.S., that you can, you can go to brick and mortar stores now and just uh, every time I go to a Barnes & Noble, which isn't often, maybe like, you know, once or twice a year, every time I go to Barnes and Noble, the anime section just keeps growing. Uh, the manga section, I should say, where it's just like a new shelf every time I go. So even now you can go to brick and mortar stores and just sort of browse through manga. And even like figures and stuff too. Like I would have never dreamed of seeing like a Figma or, you know, like the sort of name brand, like Japanese figures out, you know, you had like the Bandai, it's like If Labs kind of figures or something for Dragon Ball Z, like the stuff made for the West. But I never would have dreamed of like seeing like an import figure in like a Barnes and Noble or like a Target or something. GameStop, and, yeah, I've seen figures at Walmart now. It's crazy. But yeah, kind of getting more like, like a positive note. William, you you got like kind of a lot of merch. What is like the kind of merchandise that you kind of like to collect the most? Like obviously people have like figures or they want to do like a figure display or something. Or I kind of collect anime vinyls, you know, have a collection of those. Like what kind of merch do you kind of, or did you like to collect the most even? He's, um... It's, it's, like at the time, especially when I was getting, getting started in anime, I was really gunning for just about anything and everything that sort of came out. Because I remember, you know, days, especially especially the early days, you know, early 90s, basically, mm-hmm. again, before Windows 95, any sort of anime that I'd find, you know, around would be very, very rare, okay? Because, like, you know, no one's really heard of any titles over here, right? Sure. And, and a lot of it would be, oh, it's come out in Japan slash maybe Hong Kong, whatever. So then it kind of comes over as, you know, some toys and that kind of stuff. So if I go down to Chinatown, I would see a Street Fighter figurine or something or whatever on the shelf. It's like, well, that, that's something new. Okay, sure. I'll, you know, I'll grab that, whatever. You know, not that I was shopping for a figurine or anything, but it's just because I, I saw it there and, it, and it's an anime thing, I would have, you know, I would have picked it up. Or um, sometimes if I'm going in, into a bookstore, and I just happen to see, you know, like a, one of these, uh, you know, those fancy pencil cases with the, you know, with the pencil sharpener and all the, the extra holders and that kind of stuff in it. And it has a Gundam design on it or something, right? You know, not that, as I said, looking for a pencil case box, but uh, sure, I'll, I'll, you know, because it's an anime thing, I'll buy that, right? Yeah. But I think back in the day was a, a Dragon Ball cards, right? Oh, you know, yeah. they, they came out with all these, you know, different Dragon Ball card sets and that kind of stuff. And again, at the time, I wasn't collecting cards except for maybe like, you know, the Star Wars cards or maybe the odd end baseball card or something like that. But, you know, all of a sudden there's these anime cards and there's shinies and there's reflectives and all of the kind of stuff. So, you know, if I if I saw that uh, at a store, then sure, I'll, I'll pick up a bunch of those. And, and uh, you know, especially if they're like, you know, some of the you know, more popular characters and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, the thing that I most usually collected was um, soundtracks. I really have a really large collection of um, of anime soundtracks and that kind of stuff. Sure. I was really, really into that. So much so that I actually bought the Japanese CD catalog. 
which is basically like a, you know, a telephone book sized catalog of every single CD that came out in Japan. So it gives you the serial numbers. It gives you, you know, the track listings and that kind of stuff. And you can literally go through it, you know, in alphabetical order and actually, you know, order like anything that, that, that ever came out yeah at, at, that was like, a, like a sears catalog basically. yeah yes yeah, literally it's, it's like a i always like to refer to it as, a, as a telephone book because it doesn't have very many images in it so it's mm. literally like a, a record listing i guess you can say you know yeah but, yeah but yeah you, so, so i remember you know spending hours of gone days going through each and every line of that book you know trying to figure out okay what's this anime about or what's this line what's this one and then if it was something really interesting, then yeah, sure, I'll, I'll you know I'd go down to the to the uh, bookstore and say, yep, here, here's a list of you know like say ten CDs, you know, I want them all. And when that came in, you know that you know, that that quickly add up to three hundred dollars, like really really pretty quick, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, and three hundred dollars in nineteen nineties currency too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you're, you're paying about thirty dollars a, a, a CD, right? So yeah, yeah. So were you kind of gunning for like a full kind of collection, or were you kind of just buying whatever caught your eye, or well, both, just... a little bit of both. Before I started fan summing stuff, I was doing a lot of tape trading and that kind of stuff with other anime clubs and a, a lot of the different chapters of the CFO. The Cartoon sure. Fantasy Organization. Yeah, yeah. And at that time, you know, I'd watch a, you know, let's say a video of, let's say, the Dirty Pair movie or something, right? And I'd get really attracted to the music, the soundtrack, and you know, I was really into a lot of the, um, the upbeat sort of combat music and that kind of stuff because I'd always yeah, use that for exercising and, and and you know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of stuff and whatnot. And so the, I, I like to have that music in the background. So you know, animes that had a lot of that kind of stuff really really caught my attention so then I, i'd want the soundtracks for those animes you know projeco uh, dirty pair uh, bubblegum crisis you know all had really nice you know snappy music that had a good beat good rhythm and uh, i really enjoyed that kind of stuff uh, so, so i'd order all definitely all, order all those and the other thing that I, I you know i did for just completeness or you know shall we say stamp collecting if you will they released this uh this uh, set out of taiwan called the sm record set most people refer to it as the bootleg set, but it was you know a set of Japanese an- animation CDs being released out of Taiwan. Okay, and uh, the the advantage of those is because of the fact that they were about a third of the price. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, but they had a, 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 a specific number and a specific listing of them, and basically because you know the price point was good, I ordered every single one of those ones in, whether or not I knew what the title was or not. So, you know, the first set was like 400 CDs or whatever. I ordered every single one of them. And a lot of them were really, really good. Good surprises and stuff. Okay. Do you still pick up any kind of merchandise? Like, is there anything that you kind of missed back in the day that you kind of will see on like Yahoo Auctions or something? You're like, oh, maybe I'll just pick that up to treat myself today. Yeah, I mean, I, I still do look at figures and that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, um, there's a kind of a hobby model store that's in a mall very close to me here. And uh, they recently got, got the... Um, the reissue of the uh, one-eighth scale aerial robot. Okay. And so, yeah, I picked up one of those ones uh, recently. And, uh, you know, that was one of those ones I really, really liked to, you know, to get in scale. Um, one, of the, one of the ones I'd, I'd really like to get, which I don't even know if they even make right now, is, is um, from Zeta Gundam. I would really like to get at least a 1 to 144 scale of a, of a, of a Quinn Mantha. Just because I, you know, because I have everything else in one in one forty four, so you know. Yeah, you would imagine they have made that. They, it's a larger like made... scale than normal robot, right? It's, uh... it's, it's about fifty percent larger than Zeta, so so it's okay. a really relatively large kit. And at the same time, I, I, I just uh, my friend uh, Dober, he's he's one of those guys that goes all out crazy for figurines and that kind of stuff. 
he's like you know, got some of these super rare, you know, really huge, almost human sized figures and that kind of stuff of the Transformers and X Men and, and Marvel kids, oh, heroes and that kind of stuff. God. So much so that he actually he just recently put them into a local museum recently. Okay. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Hey, the... I'm not as extreme as him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of staying on merch. Like, what piece of merch do you kind of have, like, we'll say, like, the fondest memory of? Like, what is kind of the most, like, meaningful piece of merch? Not necessarily, like, the most valuable, but, like, what is, like, the one that you kind of have the most attachment to? Well, that's easy. Uh, Inside the uh, Orange Road Laserdisc box set, there is the art book for Orange Road. Mm -hmm. Uh, Inside that box is a essentially a 12 by 12 record size book, about 100 pages. But it contains all the cover artwork for all the um, of all the Orange Road CDs, laser discs, posters, and all kinds of stuff. Basically, it's a nice collection of Akimi Takada's watercolor artwork. Okay. This is previous to, uh, to her releasing the book Madonna. Okay. So this was at that time the only place that you can get this particular stuff in this particular book, and um, so it was Anime Expo '94. Akimi Takada was going to come to um, uh, Anime Expo to do you know her. Th- panels and and of course do autograph signings and uh i remember going and bringing this book to to get an autograph right and uh, i told this before you know i I, like anyone else you know just got in line and you know we're doing um uh you know autographs and that kind of stuff and you gotta remember orange road came out in 88 she's here at the convention at 94 so almost all the merchandise for orange road like it's all gone, right? Yeah. All, because it's you know it's several several years now, and you know virtually all the posters and and the, the CDs and that kind of stuff are all been pretty sold out. So you know unless you kind of got in there early or you you're buying a, a vintage copy of something that someone that collected, it's hard to get original Japanese stuff. Sure. Now the reason why I say it's it's kind of interesting is because most of the people that are in line who have quote Orange Road merchandise has the Chinese knockoff stuff, and the reason why it's funny is because. Just, just because how how the Chinese work, just like in hiragana, um, sorry, katakana. In order to write a foreign word in Japanese, you have to write it in katakana, right? Right. Chinese do the same way. In order to say a foreign word, like you know, kimagura, orange road, they'll use four Chinese characters to represent the sound that that character makes. Right. So, if a person not knowing this or whatever will read those characters literally. You know, not for the sound, and you know, read those for the characters that they stand for. It won't make any sense to them, right? Because it's yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll be some weird sort of you know, like why would you put those four characters together? They don't make sense together, right? Yeah, yeah. So these people would you bring up this bootleg, <laughs> you know, picture of you know Madoka or something? And it's got this weird you know Chinese written title on it, right? And you know, she'll look at that and she's like confusing. Yeah, okay, that's my picture, but that that doesn't say <laughs> orange road on it, right? So yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I'll just sign it, yeah. <laughs> and and I think this is was was her expression like all throughout this line, like she's getting really you know irritated or annoyed or like you know bored yeah, yeah, all this all this Chinese knockoff stuff. Yeah, because uh, yeah, it's just like you know what is this stuff, right? So finally, I, I bring my uh, my book on, and it really kind of surprised her because it's like you know she's never seen this before. And she's flipping through it and going, "This is like literally all my work. It's it, it is written in Japanese properly, all all the, the you know the lettering and that kind of stuff." And then um, I, I had to tell her, "Yeah, this is the limited edition book that comes in the Laserdisc box set that you buy." And I even pulled out my Orange Road card that I had. Mm-hmm. It's basically it's a 
kind of like a credit card like card, right? So it's, it's got a texture and everything on it. Yeah. And it's got the box number of the laser disc for that stamped onto the card. Oh, okay. So of the you know whatever ten thousand laser discs they made. Uh, this is number whatever right? sort of like a verification yeah 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 like a, a authentication kind of gift that they put inside the box right sure and it's so like sure that's it. yeah see this is actually from the box set and she's so surprised and she was happy so she actually you know signed it and she also started drawing like a sketch picture of madoka oh. which is a little bit more than what you do you know, everyone else does so definitely that was uh you know one of the one of the things i was really really glad that uh, i bought something like that like that yeah, that's that pretty cool like yeah really- she can't really get that really anymore, like unless you go to Japan. Like, there's it's so getting stuff signed by people like that is just kind of unheard of anymore. Especially unless you go into Japan itself. Yeah, 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 and go to like some sort of some sort of event in Japan. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. Yeah. Speaking of, I I, I guess have you ever been to Japan yourself, William? Um, I've been to Japan. Um, uh, basically when I. <laughs> When I was uh, flying over to um, uh, to China, actually, to go and um, um, meet my wife, uh, you know, let, 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 me, let me back this up. <laughs> In 2004, when I when I stopped um, uh, my anime store, part of the reason was because I was planning to meet my my you know my fiance, my wife uh, in China. I basically met her online, and basically through chatting uh, over time, I finally decided to now go and actually meet her in person. And so uh, she lives in um, in China. So basically, when I was taking the airplane flight, uh, I was taking a, an A and A flight out of uh, Los Angeles. But it does a stopover in Narita, Japan. Sure. And so while I was doing the stopover, I, I was able to go into Japan, take a train into uh, Akihabara, and basically wander around, uh, and, you know, look at different things. I met up with a friend uh, that was uh, down there, and uh, you know, we caught it up, and uh, and you know, he showed me around to some different places, like uh, some internet cafes, and uh, you know, to some various different restaurants and that kind of stuff. And but I wasn't able to buy a lot of stuff because, again, I still had the flight to go into China as well, right? So right, sure. Right. I couldn't yeah. load up on a whole pile of doujinshis or something, and that probably wouldn't go over pretty well. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, being stuck by customs. Were you able to Were you able to enjoy the trip much? I mean, I imagine you're probably pretty nervous if you're going to meet you know somebody for the first time. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, um there's a you know, a weird sort of uh, you know we've talked a lot again. You gotta remember that at this time, you know, the, the most popular thing uh, was is like MSN Messenger or um, you know oh, yeah. right, you, right right okay. So we're not talking like uh, you know FaceTime or anything. yeah. You know, I was pretty nervous because you said, you know, there's lots of very horror stories about, you know, people, you know, trying to meet a Russian bride and finding out it's a guy or something, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, but you know, I said the, the, the meeting went very well, looked and did a lot of things around her city and that kind of stuff. And basically, I stayed with her for for like a month. Um, and, uh, you know, it worked out well. And, and you know, and I said later that year, we got, we got married and, uh, and uh, everything's, you know. Have you been to uh, Japan since then at all? Uh, no. One of these days, uh, I'd like to go back because um, apparently both uh, my wife's sister and brother are, are both uh, working in Japan. So okay. One of these days, uh, yeah, we'll have to uh, go and visit them. And, and, and say, now, my son has gone back uh, over to Japan, but I haven't personally. Okay. Well, you know, that kind of stuff, like, that makes for some pretty special memories. Like, I actually dated someone who lived in Japan for a while, so... My first time being in Japan was going to meet somebody kind of in that similar situation as, as you there. So I definitely kind of empathize with it on that level where it's like, man, yeah. it's not just like tied to anime or just going to for like it's tied to like a you know special kind of occasion in your life. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. You have some like personal stakes into it. Yeah. 
getting back to you know anime um <laughs> do you still watch anime at all uh yeah actually i do watch a, a whole bunch of different types of anime when people especially at work and that kind of stuff and, and some of my friends that who i talk to that now still continue to recommend me an, uh, animes and they make notes of animes that they're rebooting a lot of them what i'll do is instead of actually watching it all the way through i'll actually um archive them you know download them yeah. sure because i want to basically watch them in sequence right Part of the reason is because I'm going through the, the animes using my anime list uh, of videos I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I want to go through them historically in order, right, and see the progression. Because I don't want to be stuck in that situation where I see something really good or, or, or like modern anime and then go backwards and start comparing older animes with modern animes that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd yeah. much rather do it sequentially forward and then I can see how things change. Oh, that's based off of this. That comes from this, that type of thing. So that's why I, I've kind of kept my exposure to really new animes, you know, to a minimum. Again, I, I did follow a couple of uh, newer things, like for example, I've, I've, I've you know caught up with the uh, a, a lot of the new um, great teacher Onizukas, um, you know, the live actions and that kind of stuff. You know, um, I just finished watching um, all the um, after I finished watching all of uh, Sakigedo Jujuko, uh, I went and watched the live action ones. And, you know, and, um, uh, and I've got also, you know, and I've also kept up uh, with watching, but uh, you know, the, the new releases of uh, City Hunter. You looking forward to the uh, Ulisse Yatsura reboot they've got coming up here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ulisse Yatsura is one of those series I really didn't follow heavily. I, you know, I think that was, that was one of those those shows that probably could have ended <laughs> probably in about forty something episodes, but they went on to like two hundred and something and two hundred yeah. episodes. <laughs> six movies yeah. however many ovas i haven't finished it myself but like i'm enjoying it like it's something i've just kind of watched on and off for gosh probably six seven years now <laughs> like since 2015 i'm probably only like 70 episodes in but i feel like it, it had like a rough start but once it kind of like shifted format and then you can kind of tell where you know rumiko takahashi like she kind of shifted the focus because initially i guess Lum was supposed to be kind of like an antagonist character, and it was supposed to be more focused on Shinobu. But once it kind of like shifted focus, like it's been pretty enjoyable so far from what I've watched. And I've only seen a few select episodes and Beautiful Dreamer because I'm a big Mamoru Oshii fan. Yeah, you skipped and went straight to Beautiful Dreamer, which I haven't even seen yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the early days, especially with those you know shows that were like a lot longer. Yeah. One of the things that always caught me with, uh, you know, those type of early animes, even w when they were still in Japanese, was the, the sense of when was that going to ever resolve? Like when, you know, I'm referring to things like, for example, Lamanataru for like, uh, you know, uh, or, you know, and I didn't really feel that for that particular series. But things like, um, you know, Maze and Akaku, you know, when were those two going to get together? Ram and a Half, you know, Ram and Akane, when were they going to get together? Inuyasha, come on, like get on with it, right? <laughs> You know, that's what kind of brought me through a lot of those type of series. Mm. Same thing with things like uh, Cat's Eye, you know, between uh, Hiromi and the uh, uh, police detective. You know, when were they going to, you know, get together? Um, you know, uh, City Hunter, you know, Kari and Yo, you know, all those type of things kind of kept it going for me to kind of, you know, to see how they were going to resolve that. And that's probably why I, I was able to last that many episodes. Detective Conan is probably another one. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I kind of feel... How you felt with, like, Usa Yatsura, I kind of feel that way with Mason Nikoku, actually. Which I have finished Mason Nikoku. But, like, Usa Yatsura, like, it, since the focus really isn't on the romance, it's just kind of more of the slice-of-life kind of comedy, and, like, each episode's, like, its own little vignette kind of thing. 
I can kind of just focus on their relationship and interactions within like that episode. And it's just kind of like, they're almost like an adorable couple to me where it's like Otter was just being this, this little asshole and like, Lum's just doing stuff in the background for him. Like just like he's reaching for some chips or something and she like pushes him yeah. uh, underneath his hand for him and stuff. Like there's like cute little moments for me with uh, Lum and Otteru. Whereas like Mason and Koku, like it was more like plot driven. So I'm like, you know, you get invested in a relationship. You're like, okay, so how is this going to come out? And then like that could have ended for me like 50 episodes sooner. <laughs> It kind of started to feel like they were kind of inflating the length of, you know, kind of some drama that didn't necessarily need to be there. And I'm like, okay, well, it's just, it seems like it's going to be a, uh, you know, inevitability at this point. Let's just kind of get it over with. But I guess that kind of highlights, you know, you know, people's just different, you know, priorities when they're watching anime. What do you, th- like, kind of value when you watch anime? Like, what stands out in, like, the series that you watch? You know, I know back in the day, you were kind of just... It was similar to me, at least for at the beginning when I was younger. Like you would just kind of consume whatever you could get your hands on, so you kind of get exposed yourself to different things. But on a personal preference, like what is it that how you consumed anime? Like was it more of like a database kind of thing where you're thinking like the lineages of like oh well this is kind of inspired by this, or is it more like the writing? Like is there elements of the writing that you kind of are drawn to, or what what is it you kind of value? Um. Well, let's see. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, though, I mean, the, the best things that, that I think really caught me was a flowing storyline. Sure. I guess based on that um, character development and, and fleshing out of all the different characters. Because, I, I mean, one of the things I, that I always liked, and it didn't really matter if it was one of these, uh, you know, because I, I always go, go back to them. For the most part, uh, especially in the early, the late 80s, early 90s, we came across a whole bunch of these shows that were basically oh no, the earth is going to get destroyed or being attacked by somebody. And, you know, the only guys that can do anything about it is our heroes. And somehow they're going to beat, you know, I mean, you know, you knew what the plot was going to be. They're going to figure out a way, they're going to invent something, they're going to beat these guys back, and then they save the earth type of thing, right? Sure. So, so yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of the the, the, the known plot, right? I was able to look through that and, and, and go, well, you know, I was also sort of interested in how the characters were developing, right? You know, uh, you know whether or not there's uh, any sort of Romantic interests going on between things. So, so for example, let's let's, let's take uh, Dan Cougar, right, between Yo and uh, and Sarah, for example. Okay, but I also liked how they also developed all the little characters. Like like usually in in uh, early animes, they were able to dedicate an episode for literally everybody in the cast, no matter how minor they happened to be. They had an episode about them doing that one es- escapade or a part of their history. For example, Saint Seiya, um, and they were able to then flesh something out and that if done right tells me more about not only that character but everyone else as well right because it brings out everyone else's you know qualities as well right for sure and i think that 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 just makes the story more full and whether or not it's a you know a simple show like dan cougar but you know uh, you know things like borgman zillion um you know dragonar uh even gundam right they all have these kind of uh elements in them which uh you know which made them really i think really complete stories and that's something i don't really see as much anymore yeah, the industry's kind of shifted more toward, you know, shorter, like, light novel or manga adaptations. And that's kind of, I guess, the way the industry's kind of adapted. 
where now it's not so much that they have to worry about OVA cells and just getting directly funded through cells of the Laserdisc or like the VHS or whatever back in the day. Now they're just paid by the uh, publishing company to adapt a manga or a light novel to help advertise that source material and boost the sales of that are just going directly to the creators in the publishing company. So it's, it's, it is a bit of shame and it's kind of shifted focus to more of like a plot kind of focused, I would say. But you, I, mean, I think you still get, you know, shows that can kind of spread their wings a bit and focus on characters and stuff like that, which it's not like a newer show, but like one that kind of came to mind when you're describing, you know, how it kind of focuses on the characters is a show from early 2000s, uh, then late 90s, uh, Ojimajo Doremi, which I don't know if you've heard of that one, but it kind of, you know, the communal aspect, it's like a magical girl show where they focus purely on problem solving for the, the characters and the supporting cast and they they actually will come back in later se- seasons and do follow-ups with the characters it's not just like a one-off episode where they flesh out that character and then forget about them like they come back and that character like you said like they are used to almost flesh out like other characters and like they can kind of bounce off other characters that are having an issue and i do think that's a bit lost when we've kind of shifted to this like shorter format of you know more plot focused so definitely, I definitely kind of see where you're kind of coming from there. Yeah, my example would be in that sort of thing was uh, when we did the fan sub for uh, Azukun Chacha or Red Riding Hood Chacha. Oh, yeah. That's exactly the same thing where certain characters, like, I mean, on the outtake, right, when you first look at it initially, it looks like essentially the same way you do a Sailor Moon episode, right? Some bad guy comes out and Sailor Moon, you know, does her thing and shh, okay, he's dead. And that would normally be the last you'd ever see of that particular bad guy, right? Yeah. But in Cha-Cha, there are episodes further on that uh, the character reappears again. And- yeah, I think it gets a little bit of leeway there because it's like a comedy show. Yeah, like, yes, so. yes, 100% that is, yes, yes. Kind of touching on that, it made me excited because watching like your favorite anime video, obviously you got like, you know, Orange Road and like Mesa Koko, but then you had like uh, Himichi no Ribbon. That made me excited because, like, I really like that show. But it, it very much is, like, kind of the same way and how it's just able to kind of focus on its characters. I know that one really stood out to me because it's, it's almost like... It kind of subverts your expectations in a way of it being a magical girl show. You know, it doesn't kind of focus on, like, what Creamy Mommy or, you know, the older kind of Minky Momos or whatever, where they're kind of having to hide their identity from, you know, their love interest and they have, like, the whole crisis of identity kind of... Like, it just kind of is Daichi like figures out her identity almost like instantly (laughs) and it makes like this really interesting kind of dynamic where they can kind of focus on them kind of fleshing out like and bouncing off of each other as opposed to this whole kind of conflict i was glad to see that you liked you liked that one so much i like that one too the again this is i guess is one of the advantages most of the stuff that we did at at, at Arctic Animation, you know, wasn't really my choice. I think I think Orange Road was probably about the only thing that I had, you know, like any choice in because that's sort of one of those, uh, you know, those VHS rental tapes. I, you know, rented from like the Japanese grocery store or something, and it just happened to be on one of the tapes. I rented it initially for like Zeta Gundam or the C hundred that was on there. Yeah, but it just happened to have this leftover episode of Orange Road on there. It really got you know got got me captivated on that. But at the time. My translator Daisuke just didn't. He didn't care about the show. Right? He didn't, you know, really didn't find too much redeeming qualities except for maybe like the twins. I think that's probably <laughs> the only thing that he really liked about out of that one. And so what he did, so everything else was basically his idea. Okay. He picked uh, like you know, he liked Vampire Princess Mew. He liked Golf Force. He a lot of the Kenichi Sonoda stuff except for Bubble Crisis. <laughs> oh, sure. And then when we started getting into the Magical Girl shows, he wasn't a big fan of Sailor Moon, but he really liked Himichan's Ribbon. So that, you know, he got me interested in that one. Uh, Miracle Girls, he liked the entire first series of Miracle Girls, so he did that one. 
again, he also got me interested in Red Riding Hood Cha Cha. And you said so this was your uh, translator at Arctic Animation? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So he was able to like watch them without the uh, subtitles because he doesn't need yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Those, yeah, yeah. But, but yes, yeah, just uh, as they were coming out on TV, you know, he was so interested in the episodes. We didn't even wait for the laser to come out. We started you know, laying down the subtitling files uh, off of the, the VHS store rental copies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess kind of since we touched on translations, I remember back in the day you had like this kind of almost a debate it's kind of a controversial like point where people would often like argue of if it should be like senpai with an m or senpai with an n and we actually watched uh the first episode of orange road that y'all did the subtitles and i noticed y'all y'all did oni chan y'all did it with a o-n-i-e can you kind of give any kind of insight into that like that side of like the translating like what was it like at the time as far as like translating like the romanji kind of well, thing well not like we had a lot of people that could actually proofread and and, and do things from japanese to, to, you know the english and type of thing yeah because mm-hmm. if you had someone that did that you would get them to do translations of whatever you, your favorite things were and you just wouldn't question it right right it's like okay right. well you understand japanese enough or you lived in japan you know we'll, we'll, we'll take your word for it that that you know that's right or that's it is that way right you know, and I guess that's partially to our detriment to the fact that, you know, I couldn't really proofread a lot of Daisuke stuff only just for English grammatically correcting types of it. Sure. If we had the time. Because I couldn't tell you whether or, not, whether or not it was, you know, it should be this or it should be that or whatever. I just take his word for the Japanese to English is the closest adaptation or maybe, you know, when we did like um, translations of songs, mm. if we... You know, maybe spent more time discussing things. We probably could have got a better feel for it or better translation out of that one. But for the most part, it's just like, okay, if that's what you say, no problem. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll go with that. And it, 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 there's a funny story about that. When we did the fan sub for Bubblegum Crisis 1, I told you, you know, he's he's, he's not a, you know, he is a fan of Kenichi Sonata, but maybe not so much of a big fan of, of Bubblegum Crisis, right? Very first thing in the beginning, right? Pris starts introducing herself, and then she starts talking about how cool her bike is. And she starts listing off all this crap about the bike. Daisy didn't want to translate that, right? He just wrote random bike stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so here I'm, I'm, I'm timing the thing out, and, and I'll get this thing going. Random time. So I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll turn on the title at this point. I'll wait until she stops, talking and I'll take the title off. <laughs> and we left it that way. <laughs> this is like, yeah. That's what she's saying. People gave me grief for it afterwards. <laughs> but that's, yeah. But I, that's, that's one of the things where, yeah, I probably could have, you know, said, yeah, come on, can you, can you know, maybe flesh it out a little bit more? But no, I just said, that's one of the things I just kind of said, okay, I'll just, I'll just leave it. Yeah. And I mean, you had to uh, put subs out pretty quickly as well. Yeah. And really, if it's it's it gives you the gist, like you don't have to have it like perfect. In that, in, in, like in that time period, like you know, if it was a really popular show like Vampire Princess Mew or Golf Force or, you know, Bone Crisis, you knew that. In a couple of years, it's probably gonna get licensed anyway. So yeah. we're gonna take, you know, we're gonna need to take it off the shelf or whatever anyway. So get it out there as fast as you can get it out there, and then sure, it'll have a shelf life of a couple of years, and then then it'll be gone. Something because I read a lot of uh, like Usenet posts that like Google archived, so you know stuff like a uh, Rec Arts anime, and I, I see people on their back in like the '90s talking about uh, asking for scripts to stuff. Because they'll have like a copy of Pat Labor Two, but it won't have any subtitles. So they'll be asking you like, well, uh, "Does anyone have the script for Pat Labor Two? And something I've always wondered about that is, at that time, if you had something that wasn't subtitled, 
would people just have a script and read along while watching the anime? Uh, yes, that was that is possible. Now, this was kind of funny because I was, I was going through some of my archives, right? Even as early as the 1990s, mm-hmm. there were, I, I guess the, the proper word is an, is an FTP site, I guess. Sure. Which had archives of, you know, some scripts and that kind of stuff and, and, and whatnot that we had. Maybe not all, you know, I mean, I think I did send a bunch of them in there. But the problem with it is, is again, data transfer. Mm. Again, before 1995, right? So, so it was before Windows, right? You know, and this is even before dial-up modems, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can think a, a floppy diskette full of various episodes of Maze Kaku and Orange Road, it would take hours upon hours to upload this to an FTP site or to a server or whatever. Yeah. So I didn't have the time to do that. Um, one of my programmers that programmed the, uh, the, the Mac subtitling software, what I did for him is I basically sent him a three and a half inch floppy diskette of files and then he would take them and put them onto the FTP uh, server. Okay. So some stuff was available, but the problem is, is getting it from a home computer onto a internet-like computer because, again, the, the data speed transfer was just so horribly slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the day before, 256 kbit modems. And then after, you know, the initial start after, like, you know, let's, you know, let's say after, let's say Maison Okaku, maybe even after Pat Labor, things around the internet start picking up a little bit, or things, you know, start picking up again, you know, like, you know, so... Uh, the people about you know are getting more into this fan sub thing. Uh, there you know we we we're, you know anime convention or parts of a convention becoming a bigger thing. So more people are getting into it and that kind of stuff. So that sort of dropped down the wayside because other people will try to start to find their own means or start to use their own translators and that kind of stuff. Right, right. It's not to say that that they didn't exist, but it's just I think uh, other people start sourcing their own material out, and and there's more people in the in, in the pool as it were. Yeah. Okay. I had a coworker. I talked about the old you know, internet in the '90s, and he was saying he used to download like full concert soundboard recordings off of like IRC bots. Like you would go on like the IRC and you could download in packets. Did anyone do that for anime? Do you know if that was a thing back then? I yeah, I guess. I mean, IRC. You know, well, I guess the later IRC was more like that. In the early days, no, it wasn't. Um, again, because it said essentially anything before you got to at least broadband or cable type of internet, which is probably, you know, just before you hit the 2000s, was really any of that kind of data transfer, data storage possible for you to store anime or any moving video online. Because you also got to remember at that time, you know, that early stage of time, they haven't even like really locked down on, on, on the compression method of you know trying to digitally sample a video cassette or or just onto a digital median right because again it was just it was grossly expensive for for hard drives they were still toying around with using you know real player as the streaming oh yeah (laughs) you remember how horrible real player was right and all these other weird sort of 3gp and all these other kind of weird formats and divx and i don't know I think the, the the industry, the technology had to mature a little bit more before we could actually get into, you know, something that actually could be stored online uh, into any something that's any, any reasonable quality other than, you know, essentially VGA resolution, you know. So I think it just took a little more time for, before that sort of really happened. Yeah. Even like the early like peer to peer, like I remember I downloaded like, you know, old VHS rips or like TV rips of like Dragon Ball Z from like Kazad, like two, I still have some of the files too. And they're like 140p, 19 to 40 megabytes. 
and those took me like weeks to download like it would take me like probably like a good week to download an episode and they're abysmal <laughs> like quality wise and but you know, that was kind of the thing you, you had to do like back then yeah that, that, that makes sense it, no i mean I, I remember all those um because i remember that you know the, what was it like was uh early early 90s yeah it was early 90s and maybe the late 80s there was that whole big thing about um like all those file sharing type of things you know e, you know, e donkey and and of course uh you know um napster you know the big thing back then there i remember one of the, the things <laughs> that i remember this day um i was going to ubc at that time and uh, the thing computer sciences and they had uh one of these you know pc lab you know which was you know quote connected to the intranet type of thing right and i remember because I, I used to collect a lot of stuff on audio cassette. And I remember when they made the announcement, oh, okay, uh, come February or whatever, we're going to close Napster down and, you know, turn it into a legit uh, thing, right? So I remember, you know, going in there like Christmas weekend or whatever it was, when like no one's around, I'd, I'd load up like, you know, 10 terminals with, uh, you know, Napster, you know, pulling down all the stuff from, from uh, you know, from, from my tape lists, <laughs> basically in a rolling chair going, okay, yeah, that's fine. Go to the next terminal, roll the next one. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Next terminal. Just, just go on a line. <laughs> like 10 well, that would have been, was yeah. that before, like when they started doing cease and desist for like copyright stuff? Yeah. 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 Okay. And, then, and finally then, yeah, of course, you know, Napster would, you know, you know eventually, you know, Changed over, right? They got sued into the ground. But yeah, but that, but that, but that was you know, but, you know, that was the way we had to get, um, you know, sound files and music files, and, and a lot of times it was you didn't know what you were downloading, <laughs> like because you know oh, you, yeah. didn't, you didn't know whether the description of the, of the thing was right and uh and, and or whether or not the you know the, the sound sample or the song sample you were trying to get was even the right song, right? You just said okay, that sounds right. Well, I'll click on it. And, yeah, close enough. <laughs> yeah, and then well, now I'll figure it out later. Yeah, kind yeah. of kind of staying in line, I guess. We'll we'll stay back in that kind of time period with music. One of my favorite like content on your channel is like the old AMVs that you kind of have like archived on there. And, you know, they're very rudimentary, like, when you compare to, like, what people do now, obviously. Like, you know, you're, I'm not super 100% familiar with how they did that back then. But they're probably, you know, just using, like, tape and... One one VHS deck and another VHS deck. Just being able to kind of sort of synchronize it to the song, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was that, like, a big thing? Because I know um, when I went to my first, like, conventions, like, they had, like, AMV kind of contests and, like, viewing rooms... But this is like 2000. Yeah, you had to like mix them live. Yeah, this is like the early 2000s. So like how prevalent was that in the early 90s or so? Or was that like going to be too much of an investment for somebody to be able to do like just a normal kind of average person? Well, okay. Th- those type of EMVs were, um, I think a lot of, is in that state of a lot of people sort of heard of them. They kind of knew what they sort of were. But actually trying to make them and do them was very, very difficult and expensive. Sure. Typically, your average everyday person isn't going to have a flying erase head VCR to do all the edits and the cuts necessary to make a music video like that. I mean, we're talking about, you know, close to $1,000 machines, right? Right. And so a typical home user wouldn't have that. And nuts included, you'd have to have two of them, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, you know, when I had my store and uh, I had the editing room available, I had a couple people come in who wanted, who had, who had ideas of making music videos. And they'd come in and they'd spend a couple hours fiddling around with those machines to actually do them. So... Um, yeah, that was really kind of cool. But the whole entire AMV thing came to me when basically when I was making these, uh, you know, fan sub tapes, right? Each of the episodes were about, you know, 22, 25 minutes long each. So when you put them all together, you use up maybe 100 minutes of a tape. 
and the tape has 120 minutes. So you basically have like 20 minutes still left over on the end of the tape. So not quite enough to make another episode, but enough to put some trailers, if you will, right? Sure. And so I came up with this idea of, well, why don't I just cut a whole bunch of like, you know, cool scenes out of a, you know, different animes and then just put them to some music. I uh, wasn't really concerned about trying to sync up the music and I wasn't trying to, you know, sync up the scenes or anything. I just wanted, here's a bunch of scenes, uh, you know, so I'll pick some, you know, cool, you know, combat scenes and people getting shot or whatever. And, and uh, maybe, you know, a little bit of the opening theme song, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, just kind of to make it look kind of, you know, stylish and that kind of stuff. Sure. And then, yeah, and just pick some of the favorite music I was listening to at the time and then I'll just shove it in there. And then, you know, that was basically uh, how it all started. And then I basically, you know, put these at the end of the tapes. And then what ended, what ended up happening is that when people, you know, got a tape from me, they, you know, they'd watch their content. And then right at the very end, there'd be like these weird sort of music videos at the very end. And they'd, you know, we watch a couple of them say, hey, yeah, that second one that's on that tape or whatever it is. Because I said, at the time, I didn't have a subtitle machine to, to actually title what it was. Yeah. <laughs> the only way you could say it is, yeah, that that show with the guy with the, you know, the tentacles and the whatever, you know. And I have to be sitting there going, oh, okay, I think I know what you mean. I think you mean Wicked City or something. Yeah. Oh, because they're one. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so, so that's how it initially started. And, and then people came up with the idea of, here's a line out of a song. Wouldn't it be cool if we, you know, somehow matched that line with this particular scene? Great idea in principle, but using the machines that we had, definitely difficult. <laughs> Yeah, because I know, like watching the uh, your Orange Road release, like y'all had to, um, the timing was such that you had to put like multiple lines of dialogue, like not even just like one character saying a few sentences, like it was like two to three characters, like you'd have to put like the different things they would say within that span of time to like, like I imagine like trying to sync up a specific line to a song that yeah, would be <laughs> kind of difficult. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the software did have its limitations back then because I said we, like, we were literally, you know, having to write the software from, I mean, literally write, write the software from scratch because there's no, right, right, like no one else is doing this kind of stuff essentially. Because a lot of the, the stuff that if you were going to do it in a TV studio or not, whatnot, you would have, you know, these roles and that kind of stuff. And, and there's a particular way that you would do it. But in terms of actually subtitling something, yeah, that's, it, this is a totally different field of thing that we were getting into it and like no one had any software for this stuff so literally when i got this this, this material i had to get someone to write me a piece of software for the amiga 500 to do it the only other person i knew that was using the amiga to do something with that was doing it on amiga 2000 and had a much bigger and more expensive system than i did so i you know i couldn't quite use what he had you know so i had to get someone to, to custom write something like that and then that was a horrible experience because it's just, you know, the Amiga had just not enough memory. It, it, it had a lot of other things that had problems with it, overheated. <laughs> that was a major issue. So then when I switched over everything to the Mac, again, I had to basically have someone else custom write a whole new piece of software that would run this, right? Right, sure. And so, again, at the very beginning, very lacking in features, very, you know, still needed to be error, you know, error corrected and bugged, <laughs> as it were. So I know a lot of like OVAs, I know y'all did a few. They would include like special features or like interviews. I've seen some where they did like music videos or featurettes for the OVA in question if they had like enough space on the disc. Did y'all ever like include those with the tapes? I know you'll probably didn't translate them. Uh, usually, we, I mean, I suppose if we let the tape run, we usually have them in there. Especially, uh, I, I I can remember. Things like uh, the, the, the okay, for example, when we did the City Hunter Jackie Chan movie, 
I remember we left all the bloopers in. When we did Gunbusters, I remember they had those little mini episodes where the, the, everyone was in, in super deformed form. And oh, yeah. uh, it was uh, yeah. you know, Norco describing how, you know, travel at near light speeds work and, you know, the, the dilation with time and everything like that. I do believe we didn't bother translating that. We just, we just threw it in there. Well, that'd be pretty difficult to translate there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as I said, we didn't always do that, but yeah, I know we did do it for some of the things. I know that some of the things, because I remember it, it got to a point where, you know, back in the day, that was a uh, enough to not just just, just throw it on the end of a uh, end of a tape or or end of a laser disc or something, they'd actually make a whole new laser disc just to put those things on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, for example, like like Borgman, for example, right? They actually had to make a Borgman lovers reign and 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 last gig where basically it's, it's everybody playing musical instruments, which they never did before. <laughs> yeah. And that's where they get to put all the songs and put more animation that kind of stuff. Yeah. Zillion did the same thing. The last gig is basically, yeah, let's let's put everybody into a band and let's release some new music. And Dan Cougar did the same thing. You sing Thai songs. It's like, yeah, okay, we'll make everybody a member of a band and get them to sing songs and stuff. I guess kind of staying in line with, you know, what y'all were doing over at Arctic Animation. Did y'all ever get in any kind of, like, legal trouble? Any kind of reprimand or anything when y'all were fan subbing? No, I mean, as I said, I mean... I- when we went down to the conventions, right, one of the things that I kind of made a point of doing was meeting and introducing myself to a lot of the important people and heads of the animation clubs mm-hmm. uh, or, and commercial companies themselves. I always keep referring to that picture where I met up with uh, Robert Woodhead from Anmiego. He's probably one of the closest people I've, I've been to and talked to for any long extended amount of time. And, sure. um, you know, we had this, you know, mutual respect and, and, and understanding for w- what we each did. Sure. You know, I knew where the boundary was, and I understood that, you know, these companies are, you know, and these people are trying to get anime out to the masses in such a way that, you know, a, a fan subber couldn't, right? Right, sure. Get it into the you know, into the retail market, get it into all the distribution channels, and get it to a larger audience, right? So I, I understood that, and I respected that's you know, what these companies were trying to do. So, you know, it's up to us, and our duty to, to basically get them to that point and allow them to do and uh, wish them the best success in doing so, right? So, yeah. And at the same time, you know, they knew that, you know, we were obviously, you know, fans themselves. I mean, we were, I think we're at this time, you know, even corporate people like Robert Woodhead and Horn Smith and all these stuff, you know, they are in heart all still anime fans, just like we all are. Yeah, right? it's still a niche thing. Yeah. And so we, so we all, we all understood each other's, you know, beginnings and that kind of stuff. We all knew where we wanted to take everything. And so that's why, you know, there was this line that we that we both stayed on and we both acknowledged. And I, I even have, and if you ever look at some of the old Arctic animation lists, I actually write and, and distinguish the difference between titles that I actually currently carry and, and titles which are actually discontinued and no longer we, do, we don't carry. Right, right. And I'll, and I'll constantly update that and move the titles down into the correct category as I know and learn about the licenses of them. So, yeah, I guess while you're meeting people, did you ever meet like Fred Patton? Uh, no, I have not met Fred Patton. Um, I did meet uh, Carl Masick. Okay. Uh, one of the first trips I went to, I went and, and met uh, Horn Smith, uh, uh, Robert Woodhead, uh, Trish Ledoux from um, uh, U.S. Renditions, and um, uh, the other person from U.S. Renditions, um, uh, t- uh, Toshi Toy. Okay, the name's blanking me right now. But yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I, 
you know, uh, whenever they were available or had a slot, I, you know, I tried to make a, you know, the, the effort to actually, you know, meet up with them and just say hi and, and, and talk. To yeah, them. sort of a, yeah, sort of a um, working relationship, I guess. Yeah, working relationship. It, it, it's a, 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 but the word I like to say is, is a working understanding of what, what each of us are, are trying to Right, right, right. And we know what each other's goals are going to be. So, you know, we try our best in our way to help them get there. Because as I said, at that time, since everything's still media-based, these companies are going to be the best way to get the best quality video, best quality source, best quality translation that you're going right. to get yeah. out of these videos. Right? So, yeah. you know, everyone was really interested in getting, you know, whatever the product that they had. A sort of symbiotic relationship, much more than what you see with, like, companies and fan subbers now. Yeah, I think the, the problem with now is that, uh, you know, there's no... Um, I guess the word is, is that, uh, you know, first of all, so much stuff that's out now. And um, and the fact that a lot of the anime is almost is almost disposable, if you will. You know, there, there, there's no longer this extra relationship or uh, sentiment to an anime that you spent that extra bit of effort, that bit of time, that bit of, uh, you know, investment, mm -hmm. shall we say. Because you just basically, you know, watched it or streamed it or whatever. And then if you liked it, it's great. If you didn't like it, it's great. You just deleted it and you just and basically you know, move on. <laughs> yeah. Put it to the back of your mind, you forgot it, right? Yeah. Whereas if you know, if you know, you literally spent that time to write a letter, you actually spent time to go to the post office and and mail off tapes and and you know receive stuff, or even uh, went to a convention and ordered a DVD or bought a DVD from from some place. It's this extra little bit of time and uh, you know expense of yourself uh, that you actually had to do, right. and, and and that that just makes it just seem that much more special because that's just that extra little bit of tie, that extra little thing that keeps you to that, and that, that's why in many in many times. Or I'll, and I'll go back to some of those classic things and, and whatnot, and I'll, I'll watch it again, and I'll, it all seems like new again, almost. There's definitely, you know, pros and cons, you know, with as much anime as that's coming out. We do get to hit on, like, such, a, like, a wide variety of kind of subjects, so it's definitely not, like, a net negative. Yeah. But, yeah, I would, I would agree that, you know, there's this level of, like, expendability, and you don't have that, like, level of scarcity, for better or worse, where... You know, back in the day, it was just like whatever you could kind of get your hands on was what you would kind of invest in. You might not be able to watch another anime for another couple months or something. So you would kind of spend time on that and kind of go back and look at you know, clips or watch your favorite episode or anything like that. But do you think there was like this level of mutual respect or understanding in the community back then that's kind of lacking now from just like the baseline of just the difficulty of getting into like if you were into anime in you know the late 80s or 90s like you kind of could understand like that a certain level of dedication to having to even be able to access anime whereas today if someone says they like anime you know you could have somebody that's more in line with like us in this call you know they might be watching stuff from the 70s and 80s or be really into you know the production side of things or they could just be somebody who watched My Hero Academia on Netflix on a Friday night or something. Yeah, yeah. And you just have this such a wide range of experiences. How the anime fandom has sort of evolved from being a part of other fandoms, you know, in the 80s and stuff, to now sort of being such a large thing that there are now subgroups, and it's kind of weird to talk about the anime fandom as this singular monolithic thing. Yeah, I, I remember, like, when I was younger, you would just hang out with whoever watched anime, yeah. Because you would just kind of get what you got. Like, you'd hang out with someone that liked Inuyasha if you didn't like Inuyasha, because that was the only other person who might have known about, like, Dragon Ball Z or 
whatever you were talking about at the time. Do you think that's been kind of lost now, like that kind of level of mutual understanding of each other with like the ease of access? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I think the way that I see it is that an anime fan that, that that kind of grew up in this sort of like let's say the pre-availability era. So let's let's say before we got anime on TV, for example. Okay, so so let's just say before um, Sailor Moon, before um, Gundam Wing, Toonami, stuff uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Tsunami, Cartoon Network, and that kind of stuff, right? Basically, every if you look at the histories of basically people that got started in anime, they pretty well much all started the same. You know, they're in their own little community. They had nowhere where to get anime. They, you know, they, they go to the local comic book store or whatever. They find the odd trickle thing like that, and then they would meet someone that also knew about anime, and then from there they kind of shared tapes. Uh, you know, maybe shared contacts. And then slowly spidered out from there, maybe, you know, joined a club at their local school and things like that. And you'd learn more and more and meet other fans. But all these other fans sort of understood each other because they all started the same way, right? They, none of them were, you know, shall we say, entitled or grew up with anime. They all grew up with other stuff, other interests, whether it be, you know, uh, Saturday morning cartoons or Star Wars or Star Trek or, uh, you know, Doctor Who or whatever, right? They all had all these other interests. And because all the other fans, you know, didn't have anime or whatever as one of those interests, they kind of used anime as a common reference point. And they all kind of grew into anime from there. When we get to, like, the era of anime being on TV, now all of a sudden you get all these kids, I guess you will. They grew up watching anime on TV. You know, so all the Dragon Balls, the Inuyashas, the Gundam Seeds and Wing and... Uh, you know, Sailor Moon. And, and then they came up with the concept that, well, uh, we've always had anime, right? And now we're starting to get you know, a divide of how their experience, uh, you know, getting anime to like, obviously now the modern people, which, you know, basically get all, got all their anime online. So there's no sort of physical attachment. So no uh, having to, you know, to buy a copy of the DVD or handle, um, you know, manga and books and that kind of stuff and sure. you know go to the conventions the bike that that type of thing everything seems to be all online and can be theoretically online and also being that way they don't actually need to go to a convention don't need to uh, talk to other people in real life about anime they can find plenty of people and they'll find their own things online so in many ways i think people are becoming less and less social <laughs> and you know less and less I don't, know the, I don't know the word full is the right word, but maybe just less rounded, shall we say. Sure. And uh, and in many ways, that's probably what segments and, and breaks the anime culture into in multiple groups. Because maybe, you know, you meet, you hang out with that person that, uh, for example, maybe that doesn't exactly know what Dragon Ball is, and but knows what, you know, you know Inuyasha is. But since he's the only other person around that talks anime or knows about anime, you kind of hang out with them type of thing and kind of socialize with them. But then now in this modern era, you don't have to do that, right? You can go online and you can find plenty of people interested in exactly what you want uh, or your particular niche of the market and just talk about nothing but that. And you can find all uh, all the other fanatics based on just that topic alone. And you're fine with that. Yeah. So I think in many ways we are dividing ourselves in that kind of stuff. And maybe that makes us a little less rounded because, you know, we're not willing to then try out some other stuff that, you know, we would never would have you know really got into. I mean, I think part of the discovery uh, that, that that was so interesting back then is that I may not have liked the same titles and that kind of stuff as my translator Daisuke or my other translator Matt, 
or John uh, was. Sure. But after I was able to 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 see what they've what, what they're watching and what they're doing and what they're translating and actually, went, I yeah, I got really interested in things like Himichan's Ribbon, Miracle Girls, and uh, Nurse Angel, uh, uh, Ridica, and uh, Five Star Stories, <laughs> things like that. Right. Yeah, I know that through like my anime club, the anime club I was in in college, you know. Uh, we would have, you know, everyone would dominate something to watch on on Friday nights. And through that, being able to watch a lot of stuff that I never would have even have ever thought to have checked out. And I'm sure I probably did that for other people as well, because I would always recommend like very weird, obscure stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think you get that a little bit, you know, in communities like because, you know, me and Sai, we have like a, a server where we uh, host group watches together and we try to watch group watches yeah we, we almost do it like a randomizer yeah, yeah like we just try to take advantage of you know the full database of information that we have available where it's like you know if you had the option of like going back to period of like the 80s and 90s or like now as far as like ease of access and like i i definitely wouldn't go back but i do think it is a shame that so many people don't really take advantage of the amount of tools and and you know, things that are and available, resources that are out yeah, there. Yeah, all these things that are available to them now that you didn't, we wouldn't have had 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, like as you said, they will just watch a show. And, it, and that's pretty calm. I remember doing that when I was younger, even before, you know, the internet. Like you would just kind of get so invested in this one long show that would consume a lot of your time that you would spend watching other stuff. But I think since we have these like fragmented communities where you have like a community purely based around like Attack on Titan or purely based on My Hero Academia, like you'd never really necessarily have much of a inclination to branch out from that because, you know, you can just kind of indulge in that fandom and people are always constantly making new stuff and always constantly kind of talking about it because there's always somebody new coming and talking about the show and they might bring a new perspective on the show, which... All that in itself like, is great, but personally, I've always found it as a shame that people aren't using that to kind of branch out and explore and just consume all that they have kind of available to them and just finding their own taste in a way. You might have your own preferences within that show, but a lot of people aren't necessarily finding like their voice as far as like what they like to consume because they're just so pigeonholed into what's kind of popular and what they can kind of talk about. Um, and yeah, I just, I just kind of think that's a shame. Yeah. Maybe when technology gets a little bit better and, and you know, maybe when AI starts kicking in, they'll actually actually have some way to access the anime database and, you know, sort of your preferences and your likes and that kind of stuff. You know, maybe you give it a few anime titles or whatever, and then it would automatically use AI mm. and kind of, yeah. oh, if you like this, then you should watch this, 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 and this. And kind of have that now, but it's and, not uh, particularly uh, sophisticated. Yeah, it's not refined yet. And, and you know, yeah. you know, if you... You know, if you typed in, you know, whatever this, that, that you know, maybe it does searches on, on, you know, character designers and, you know, these, this is actually a sequel to this or that or a prequel or, you know, yeah, yeah. In the same universe as or whatever, then, you know, they, they kind of cross link them somehow. And then, you know, they come up with things that say, hey, you know, you, you should check out all these titles or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I think that's something that's sort of missing because uh, so, you know, if I was, um, you know, like, like for example, like uh, I look at my son all, all the time, and you know, I don't want to really press any anime titles on him. I want to, I want him to kind of find and look and see what what anime that he wants to watch naturally on his own. Mm -hmm. But I seem to see that he, you know, there's so much out there that he doesn't know what to pick. Yeah, without actually sitting there and going, 
oh, this anime is about this thing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, that doesn't sound interesting. You know, let me go to this one. It can be kind of overwhelming, especially if you're unfamiliar with it. Yeah, and, and yeah, literally, the, we've got like now probably a good database of like almost 40 years of anime. Yeah, yeah. That you could easily pick, you know, a whole bunch of titles that even, even to modern day standards are still amazing animes to watch. Yeah. But no one will know to go to watch things like, you know, Macross Plus or, you know, Rolls, you know, Wings of Animes, Rolls Waste Force, or heck, even for that matter, Akira, right? They wouldn't know to go back there until someone else told them, hey, this, you know, there's an anime called, you know, Akira. You should check it out. Mumi and I often get a little a little laugh when, when someone says a movie like Akira is like a hidden gem, and we're just like, it is? Excuse <laughs> us. The thing that inspired The Matrix, Ghost of the Shell, a hidden gem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's kind of in line with some like a, another question I have. Um, you know, back in you know the eighties or nineties, like how prevalent was the knowledge of like older series? Like obviously in the anime boom, you would have companies that are kind of going back and picking up like older OVAs, like from the eighties. But you know, a lot of like the seventies series weren't necessarily getting picked up. How prevalent was like the knowledge of like something like a Rose of Versailles or like a Future Boy Conan or even like an Anna Green Gables? Like how aware were people at the time of shows like those back, you know, even 10 years after they had released, 10, 20, 15 years after they released? I think that's, again, technology again, because you got to realize that. OK, so these shows, like, like even something like Gundam, like the very, very first series of Gundam, mm-hmm. you know, 78, right? The problem with that is, is that the TV station would, would run that show. And they would probably not rerun it like ever, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Until sure. they they release it onto a, onto a videotape or onto like a and later on release on laserdisc, right? So the people who were able to you know make a videotape or a VHS recording of it at that time would be the only people out there that would actually have a copy to show other people with. And again, we're at an era where if you were going to watch an anime or to show an anime to someone, you would actually have to have a physical copy of it on a tape. And then you'd have to make a physical copy of that tape to give it to another person saying, hey, here's a tape of Gundam. You know, it's pretty cool. Check it out. Watch it, right? Yeah. But the problem is is that back in, you know, if you think 78, very few people had a VCR. Right, right. Okay. Very few people even had a Betamax at that time, right? Because it's just, just, you know, cutting edge at that time, right? Sure. No one wants to spend $1,000 on a VCR. So the number of copies of something like that or uh, uh, was, is very, very limited. So therefore, the number of people who would have had it or watched it or know about it would be very limited. Even if you saw it in an Animedia magazine or a, a New Type or, a, or you know, one of these Japanese magazines, well, great. So now you would know about a show called Gundam, but you... How do I watch it? You know, you couldn't get a tape of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, unless someone... Uh, like a, like a video rental store or something like bought the VHS tape of you know some random episodes of it or whatever. You would never be able to get a copy of it, and you would never be able to see it. You wouldn't be able to distribute it. Um, even if I you know went and wrote to a, all these uh, fan subbing groups or, or or like you know CFO chapters and that kind of stuff, they'd probably be in the same situation, right? Right. Sure. If nobody sure. had it, no rental store had it, they're not going to have a copy of it, and therefore, um, you know. Uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to see it. They wouldn't be able to make a copy for it for me to see it either. So the breaking line, okay, for that would be roughly about, I would say, 1981-82, which is roughly about where Macross, the TV series, was. Um, we started to see, like, a lot of more, like, home media releases. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, things like uh, 
You know, I think that's roughly where where, where uh, or Battle of Dunbain roughly was. Ilidion. Uh, yeah, yeah. You all started to see like a lot of OVAs at that time. Yeah, where a lot of people would maybe have a you know a handful of episodes, but more of the OVAs and the movies and that kind of stuff. Because again, the the TV series at that time was too hard to get or too hard to you know, if 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 anyone had a copy. Because I remember I did, I did get some eventually finish um, my set of Mobile Suit Gundam episodes. But where some of the episodes were literally black and white, and you know the tracking was so far off on it, you know it may as well be like watching a snowfield, right? Now. Yeah, we've definitely watched some rough stuff before, um, Mumi and I. Really <laughs> yeah, hard so it's not that, that these people didn't know about the shows like that. You know, Anna Green Gables, you know, because that, that, that's a really popular you know, show, especially uh, you know played in Europe on European where TV. We got into that whole entire era of oh, they've got a book on it, so let's make. An anime about the book type of thing. Yeah, yeah, the world masterpiece, yeah, world masterpiece theater form. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's where all that whole entire thing of you know, Anna Green Gables, um, Heidi of the Alps. Yeah, yeah, Heidi of the Alps, uh, the Three Musketeers, for example, yeah, um, Tom Sawyer one, many such cases. <laughs> uh, Sherlock Hound, even right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but the, the problem is again, it's not whether or not it's it, it uh, you know people really wanted it or that. It's just in terms of of when it came out uh, and how when it was available. Or someone had recorded it, or anything like that. Yeah, so it was really a, a media thing at that time. Right. Yeah, and I imagine something like Gundam would have been like particularly hard because obviously Gundam's pretty infamous for not having done so well as far as like ratings and stuff like that. So, oh yeah, yeah. I imagine they probably didn't have a whole lot of VHS tapes just floating around until, and it, it, they might have came out a little bit once uh, the movies and model kits kind of hit and uh, made it a little bit more popular. Yeah, which I guess you know, on the subject of TV rips, do you still own any TV rips, or is that something that you would have just kind of got done away with? Or how many like original like TV rips do you think might even be out there? Because like me and Cy were talking with Kenny at one point about how we think that's gonna probably be like the next thing is just like people trying to find like original TV rips, yeah, of shows. Maybe not necessarily from the eighties because that's getting. A little bit far back, but you know, even just if it's like the '90s, just from people wanting that nostalgia trip of just like watching Sailor Moon or Dragon Ball Z on the original broadcast, like back in the '90s or something like that. I think uh, Mercury Falcon actually recently put out a video talking about something that we only have footage of because someone recorded it onto a VHS tape like a decade after it aired because it played in one specific block at only a couple episodes. Well, I think Kenny did that too about the uh, Princess Diana. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, how we yeah. only have the that Princess Diana anime because one person decided it's like it's like it's like a it's like fossils, you know, only <laughs> it takes very specific conditions for something to turn into a fossil and us to know about it. Yeah, absolutely. I said, and and you know, it's kind of funny because I said I, I probably got rid of most of the stuff that I I, I had because I said um because there's a lot of stuff that I I got was from these you know mom and pop shops, which basically you know Japanese family owned business where they had you know obviously relatives and friends in Japan, and they made a business of basically hey we're gonna buy like you know six VCRs and you know every day. We want you to record everything from, let's say, 4 p.m. to like, you know, 9 p.m. every day, you know, label it on a tape, you know, six different stations, and then basically put them into a box and mail them to us every month. And then they basically, when they arrived in Vancouver here, they'd rent them all out so that, you know, people here could watch Japanese TV without actually, you know, without actually using satellite or whatever, right? And uh, there's, you know, that was a big business, right? 
Yeah. And I remember, you know, when the, when the tapes got old, they'd always end up putting them in a pile and selling them off for like 99 cents or something, right? Previous you know, tape rentals or whatever, right? And I'd, and I'd remember I'd, you know, I'd spend 50 to to $100 in a shot just, just, just to buy that entire stack of videos, right? And it'd be like, uh, you know, going through like Christmas presents, going yeah. through those things. Because you never know what you're going to find, right? Yeah, yeah. And I found some of the weirdest stuff. That, uh, you know, and, and some of the weirdest clips I remember, you know, in, in my mind and, and whatnot. And I, and I remember clipping out and I, I remember keeping them. And, I'm, and actually, I, I actually managed to find one of my one of those clips I was looking for for um, thing. And it's just, it, it, it's great. It's a, uh, you know, uh, you know, of course, you know, again, again, I gave most of those tapes away. And, and uh, you know, I said, do you want to do my anime giveaway? I'm probably going give to give away some more. But yeah, there's some of the you know some of the greatest and sort of rarest things I've remember seeing. Like for example, that that weird Sailor Moon M skit I remember seeing, and then and uh, I remember this one where the you know the the, the popular comedy group um, Tunnels. Um, I remember they were they, they were getting ready to do a, a dance performance in New York, and so the, the, the they they had to get the host to brush up on his English, right? So they brought this um, this black guy from New York. <laughs> To teach him how to speak New York. <laughs> oh no! So it's like you know, okay. So it's like like we'll, we'll teach you an introduction line. Okay, what's the introduction line? What's up? <laughs> what's up, yo? <laughs> and then you have the translator have you know to, to explain them. Oh, what does you know, yeah, yeah. does this? And you have to say, yo, and it's like okay, yeah. So just, just a little funny thing like that. I remember um, the, the, one of the ones I, I just found again was. Um, there's a special on the 30 years of animation hmm. it goes over the last 30 years of animation as of like 1990, I think it was. Okay, wow. Uh, from the TV station, but it's hosted by the guy who plays senior Akira Toriyama. And the last clip that they did was, which is with City Hunter, they got the voice actor for Psycho in the interview, and they basically uh, in that little clip they did a kind of a a mini Makori uh, voice acting thing. Like a, a really kind of a rare thing that, that that they did. So I managed to find that clip. But yeah, it's just little little snippets like that. Yes, you're right. You can only found um, literally, you know, when when you just leave the VCR recording and it just happens to yeah. like show up all these things. Yeah, yeah. Like I think I I really think that's gonna be like the next thing people are trying to like find is stuff like that because obviously we're we've got a nice database of. There's, obviously, there's a lot of stuff that we haven't gotten, like, you know, there's anime that just probably lost to time. The original uh, Doraemon. Yeah, the original Doraemon, stuff like that. But I think there, there's probably going to be some kind of, like, movement to like, try and preserve, like, old, Archive pure broadcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. True, yes, because I said, I think one of the things I was looking for when I was trying to do one of my episodes was that um, the whole th- entire thing about um, the NEG5 and the uh, the Samurai Troopers. Ronin Warriors. Hmm. Oh, yeah. They made a documentary about what, well, how the anime itself, in terms of, of a marketing perspective, failed to hit the market because they're marketing towards guys and action figures and that kind of stuff, right? And that part of the, the, the marketing like totally failed. Instead, it attracted the entire female audience who are really interested in the seiyu mm. and, 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 and the band. So just a whole video on basically how part of uh, Samurai Troopers really went really well and how all that merchandise sold good, and then later showed all the you know all the overstock of all the you know samurai trooper like action figures and all that stuff, 
which just sat and like you know <laughs> no one could sell it's it's funny because we actually were just looking at a quote from tomino yesterday oh yeah yeah he was talking about the original fans of gundam who were there kind of at the beginning who were showing up at the recording studio were actually like the the female audiences right who were watching it for like char and stuff like that yeah yeah the uh the the fuloshi yeah i don't know if he necessarily used that but yeah so it's funny that you brought that up about ronin warriors so i guess like i know you you chose like orange road to subtitle because you know you saw it on the tape what kind of drew you to doing like anime subtitles as opposed to like searching out the manga and maybe trying to translate that was that ever something that kind of crossed your mind are you even aware of like the manga or is that something that you could buy i know today manga is a little bit easier to get a hold of than you know like an anime as far as like prices stuff like that yeah but obviously 20 30 years ago i'm not sure about how prevalent it would have been to get imported manga even as cheap as it was but was that anything that kind of kind of crossed your mind as far as maybe just doing manga or was it always just kind of like you were just drawn to the anime Actually, interesting story about that. It was, it was actually Orange Road again. Basically, when I was watching Orange Road, and I got a good number of episodes, and I've using the you know the the anime magazines to figure out you know what episode I was on, and I got to episode forty eight. Now, I won't I won't give you any spoilers, but I'll I'll try to explain what I what I, what I, what it came to. Got to the very very end, and I couldn't understand what the hell was going on because it was just a weird, like the episode was going everywhere, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I got to the end. And it's like, I still don't get what's going on. Okay, so, so so the first thing I did was, okay, I'll get the manga. And I was taking, uh, you know, Japanese um, at the university. So, I mean, I, I had a little bit of knowledge, you know, look, look things up and use the dictionary and whatever. So I thought, okay, I'll get the manga, I'll translate it from the manga, and then I'll, I'll, then I'll know, and I'll figure out what's going on. So I got the, and then we had a bookstore. We had actually two bookstores at that time. So it wasn't too difficult uh, to, you know, use one of these uh, Japanese bookstores to order it in from Japan to get the, 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 a full set of manga. So I ordered the manga, got that in, went to the right, right away to the very last issue, 12, went and flipped right to the back. And okay, yeah, okay. So the manga ends the same way. Let's just translate the, you know, the, the, this chapter and I'll see if I figure it out. So I translated it. The manga and the thing has the, exactly the same line. <laughs> Okay, and I still couldn't understand. It. <laughs> it's like, damn it! I went through all this work and it didn't help. Yeah, so I was like, okay, so this is so this isn't gonna work either. So then finally, then I had to, you know, basically then I had to go, you know, go up to Daisuke and said, okay, Daisuke, I really need your help. <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. You, you know, you have to translate it for me. After much, co- uh, you know, coaxing and uh, and uh, going through all much the equipment, I finally, um, you know had got it you know enough context in that because to actually understand how that last episode transpired and and that so and, and then from that i realized okay yeah i think i'll continue going it you know this way um because because i think it's just a sort of a, a snowball effect right it's just the next one Maison akaku just sort of kind of rolled and landed in our lap more or less that's how i got started with that one that's when we did our first uh um actually i'm doing the episode right now but it's my um it's the first uh, anime fan subbing uh, collab that we did. Oh, sure. It was with the uh, fan subbing group um, Random Project, and that's the when we first did uh, Maze on Ikaku. And that sort of was the second one that I didn't choose, but it sort of landed in our lap. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I've, I've been kind of... Because you often in your videos, you talk about Maze on Ikaku and Kimigura Orange Road. But I know in Japan, 
there's like a third series that was kind of in contingent with those two and that was really popular uh touch was that something y'all were kind of aware of or come across around that same time period or uh so what it basically was is basically um like i was aware of touch i i didn't like the story of it nor did i like did i like the animation for it like i, sure. I, I very, very sort of avoided that one but the way that the magazines pushed it okay and that's you know when you look at the the size of the company and and and, and where things were you had basically Urusuri Yatsura, right Rumika Takahashi just ended and they just started this new you know her next series Maze on Akaku right yep. so pretty well much that was going to be a guaranteed hit right right sure um so everyone's eyes are already watching Maze on Akaku. after um you know a year of Maze on Akaku sort of started they threw out Orange Road Okay. Now, I would have never found or you know, like Orange Road if I followed the magazines. Okay. I basically because Orange Road was basically always buried in the back of the magazine mm. because it, it was never featured in New Type because it's not a movie or they never got to the OVAs, so it wouldn't have shown on, uh, up in Anime V magazine. So it only ever would have been in Animedia magazine, which just focuses on TV series. And because Maison Akaku has already been out for a year and continuing. Everyone's focusing on that. So all the covers and that kind of stuff are all Maison Akaku. You look at the first few pages, it's Maison Akaku and that kind of stuff. Orange Road, if it ever is in the magazine, is at the very, very end under other TV shows. So no one was watching Orange Road. And Touch is much the same way, okay? Again, not as big as a company uh, as Viz Media or whatever you would call it, or Kodansha. Uh, obviously not as big as a name like Rumiko Takahashi because she, you know, she just released a very popular, you know, Udashat Zero episode, so a, a series. So now she's continuing on with Maison Akaku. So she's got everything going behind her uh, in in the marketing machine right. uh, that you know that basically pushed Maison Akaku, uh, as, you know, to, to, you know, as high as it as it did. So that's why you know Orange Road is you know was always always in the background, touched always in the background, and um, and it had its own little following, right? So yeah, I was aware of. You know, touch, but I just again not. I thought the animation was a little, a little too simple, and the story, um, you know, although it focused it on the main, you know, I just didn't uh, feel that it was going far enough, and not the clue that you know, the, the concept of the baseball wasn't really. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I really got into baseball. Princess yeah, Adachi's pretty infamous, at least now. He, I mean, Touch, I think, was his first like big adaptation. That's all his stories is. Twins and baseball. Just quickly on the topic of sports, just briefly. In your videos, you're always wearing a different sports cap. Oh, yeah. Why? How did that start? <laughs> well, I only really actually only have a couple of, uh, of ball caps, right? Um, yeah. Because uh, I, I, I tend to wear ball caps almost all the time. Work. But, yeah, no, um, I originally had a, a Montreal Expos cap. Yeah. And that was the one that I wore on the Happy Console Gamers Club episode. Okay. And people just, you know, they, they, you know they're pointing at that. They're going, hey, you know, oh, you're wearing a, a Witch Hunter Robin t-shirt. And <laughs> and so the other said, oh, yeah, great Witch, Witch Hunter Robin. Is. And other people would say, yeah, great Expos hat. You know, like, okay. <laughs> okay. You know, this is an anime podcast. You know, people pay, you know, pay attention to that. So, yeah. you know, so, uh, so that from that, I, I, I've always wear, you know. I always wear basic either uh, my Montreal Expos, my Toronto Blue Jays, or my Seattle Seahawks. So I guess we'll kind of ramp it down a bit, um, kind of bring it to a closing. Um, yeah, we've been going about two and a half hours now. Yeah, we've been keeping you long enough. <laughs> Do you feel that, because I've noticed, like in your your favorites, obviously, quite a number of them are ones that you fan-subbed. 
which obviously you you were really drawn to the show and you wanted the fan sub them. Do you think that your time kind of fan subbing impacted how you kind of consume or enjoy anime in any way? Do you think something like a Hime-chan ribbon or Meisone Koku, do you think that you kind of hold such a high reverence for it because of the time that you spent fan subbing it? I mean, I've always had, like I said, I mean, you know, I've always, you know, gotten anime and that kind of stuff, you know, back at that time. I've always followed the magazines and that kind of stuff because I said I, always, I was really always interested in like Dragon Art, for example, Metal Armor Dragon Art. Hmm. But, it, you know, it took me like, you know, the longest time, like forever before I actually got translation for that. Um, SPT Lazenar was another one, right? Um, where I, you know, was very, very fond of that anime. Um, you know, I liked the, you know, the, the political intrigue that sort of happened, you know, the, the concept of a futuristic sort of Cold War type of thing. So I was always fond of those kind of animes. I just didn't have a full, you know, translation or uh, understanding of what was going on. Now, Saki Tujuko was another one, right? Um, where, uh, you know, again, I, I watched a lot of the episodes without really having a good idea what was going on. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, I'm just thankful that, you know, a lot of people have gone backwards and uh, gone back and touched up all these episodes and, and done fan subs for them because now I'm, I'm able to now watch them, uh, you know, and understand them like I, I, like I never did before. The other thing is that, you know, when you go and spend a lot of money on Laserdiscs and that kind of stuff uh, for, for, for something, that really kind of, you know, is an indicator that really tells you that, 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 that you know, you really have some kind of, you know, thing for this particular anime. Because I said, I, I did spend you know, money pretty almost whimsically, I suppose, back then. But it, it was always because, uh, you know, something caught my eye, you know, whether or not it's the... Yeah, the pictures from the anime magazines or the posters or something, you know, saying, "Well, that looks really cool," or you know, you know, I see the, you know, the opening theme song or something or or something of that series, and I go, "Yeah, that 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 looks like something I can get into." Let's go and spend a couple hundred dollars on that, and I think you know, really, a lot of shows, you know, I would do that. And again, you know, it's not to say that I didn't spend like you know some money on some duds. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's just kind of nature of it. But do you, I mean, do you feel like that time kind of spent working on it? Do you think that kind of enhanced your enjoyment of it at all? Well, yeah, definitely. I said, I mean, I think a lot of what I worked on, especially in the early times, and then sort of past the gap of, of the stuff that sort of was was sort of uh, you know, I guess that the entire period of magical girl shows, which was were, again were titles that weren't of my picking, but they became interesting to me. Sure. Okay. Like you know, you, you know your Human Chance Ribbon, your Miracle Girls. Red Ring and Cha-Cha, for example. Then again, back to uh, uh, those episodes that, that uh, you know, again, getting back to the fans of being the ones that I wanted to, 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 to learn and know about, you know, um, Double Zeta Gundam, uh, G Gundam, uh, you know, those ones I really wanted to know what was going on. Uh, Heavy Metal Elgine, that's another one, you know. You know, I always had this, uh, you, know, cause I've, you know, you know, I've always wanted to know what was going on. I wanted, to, you know, the, the, the story was sufficiently confusing enough that I needed to get some resolution on that, right? And so it was only until you know I went through the process of getting translators, you know, getting the you know, to translate it, time it out, and then you know, kind of see the end result. It's sort of like, okay, now you know, you know, just like that moment that I explained to you with, with the orange road, I'm I'm actually now piecing it together and I'm understanding you know, what I saw when I didn't have translation. Yeah, I guess I guess for the last question. Um... This will be the, like the essay prompt <laughs> question. Um, how do you think anime and like its involvement in your life? How do you think it's kind of impacted your life as like a whole? 
other than the you know you know anime being the you know like like an entertainment thing because right? you know first and foremost that's what you know the anime is about it's, it's entertainment right sure. um yeah. uh for sure it definitely gave me uh first of all a lot of uh you know insights and and and, and sort of a different way to think of things right because uh, i you know i never would have thought of doing some of the things i i would have done you know for example to meet my wife and whatnot um, if I didn't, if, if I didn't see it in an anime or didn't see, see it attempted in some way, in, in a different way, and I thought, you know, that seems really corny, but I, I think I, I think I, I could actually try that, right? And things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, sure. I'll, I won't get into the uh, that in this episode, but you can ask me about uh, uh, my uh, my karaoke session about that. But um, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so that that's definitely one thing. But I think the other thing that was, I think it was really, I think I, I will take away from the anime um, and whatnot, is the community that that was attached to it. Um, you know, at the times that I, I I was running my store and had all and had you know all these different people that that, that were also interested in anime and that kind of stuff that that, that dropped by, uh, you know, sometimes what almost seemed like daily, you know, just to hang out, play video games, to watch anime, to talk about other things that weren't anime. Um, you know, I, I think that you know that community um, was you know it was absolutely invaluable because I said I, you know I learned uh, so much more about other you know you know the human condition and, and just 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 how to you know be more personable uh, to be more rounded I guess it's not a hmm. uh, better word because again um, you know if I had done it uh, a different way. Uh, you know, you know, was a consumer rather than a than a than a, a participant. You know, I could very well be just you know, you know, one of these people that that that, um, that, that doesn't have a community that just only sort of you know watches the anime or or, or things as a, as a form of entertainment, but have very little social interaction with real people. And uh, so I think that that may be one of the things I probably would have lacked. If I did it any, uh, any other different way, yeah, I definitely, I definitely empathize with that. Like, I think what draws a lot of us to anime is just, you know, that different kind of perspective, because obviously it's something just so new and out of left field for a lot of us. You know, back twenty years ago or so, um, that it almost drew. You know, a lot of us to it as you know something you know different from what we kind of know. Um, obviously, you have a lot of like Eastern sensibilities in anime that kind of translate to something you know something that we don't really can encounter in our everyday life. Um, and so, I think you know, building a community around that where. You know, you all kind of have this shared appreciation for, um, you know, this medium of storytelling that's, you know, just so different from what you kind of are used to in your everyday life. And, like, the little dedication and, um, you know, that just that community. Like, I've, I've kind of been, I guess you could call it Sundere. <laughs> uh with anime uh in my life because i went through phases where i didn't watch it or care for it or whatever um just usually just being busy with 
you know, other things in life. Um, but it's always something I've, you know, I've always kind of come back to. And it's always been kind of something that has resonated with me. And really, it's opened the door for a lot of, you know, unique experiences and special moments that I might not have ever had otherwise. Um, hadn't If I hadn't, you know, watched anime. So, yeah, I think it's a very... I like the cute girls. 